Hello, welcome to episode 13 of the Rising Edge DNO podcast. Unlucky for some, but hopefully not for us. My name is Richard Kutcher, and with me on this journey is Owen Dacey, Head of Claims at Rising Edge. Owen, happy hump day. Thank you very much, Richard. Have a good week. Enjoying the um, mainly the amount of conversations we're having about how dark it's become now that the, the clocks have gone back. So yeah, enjoying that. So I have a different view on that. I'm actually a morning person, Okay. and it's lovely and bright. In the morning, I wake up 6.37, maybe not quite that early for brightness, but I like the extra hours we get in the morning the brightness. Okay. I can take or leave the evening. I'm going to stay in probably watch the football, have a beer anyway. Mm-hmm. So um, take take the morning light while you can. That's why I say. So in the last episode, we were all about policy wordings with Francis Keane at McGill and Partners, which was a really fascinating uh, 20 30 minutes or so and i believe things are taking as you say a darker turn actually this time however owen as we delve into the world of commercial crime so uh, tell us tell us what we've got coming up on that topic yes talking about crime be that internal employee crime or external uh, third party crime it's an important issue obviously at a board level when thinking about risks that can impact the business why we're talking about it we've got tom philby um, who's our guest today he's a partner at the law firm Mills and Reeve. He is the reason we've asked Tom. He's an, he's an expert in this area in commercial crime and fidelity. Really want to get his purpose really is to get his insights on the landscape, um, risk mitigation, lessons learned uh, from cases that he's he's advised on. So yeah. Good. Well, it was a really interesting chat with Tom and let's get into it then. Tom starts on what the current landscape looks like with regards to commercial crime. I guess if one were to peruse a commercial crime insurance policy with references to safes and cash in transit, you'd perhaps be forgiven for thinking that commercial crime is, is all about little Michael Caines running around blowing the, the doors off trucks and stealing gold bullion. And, and perhaps once upon a time it, it was, and this sort of, um, say, sort of financial protection against very tangible crime remains extremely valuable to many businesses. But what has evolved and without doubt what the prevailing commercial crime risks are today are a lot more subtle albeit no less destructive and all of that's reflected in the constant evolution of of commercial crime insurance the the first one is what we call fidelity or employee fraud and this refers to employees that steal money from their business or money that the business might hold or manage for clients or customers um, I suppose by way of illustration, many of these frauds will typically involve the dishonest fabrication of third-party invoices for goods or services to the business. But the account number and the sort code designated for payments is that of the employee's personal account or perhaps one of their, their friends or, or family members, let's say. And you can imagine in a business with a high volume of transactions, these payments can go easily unnoticed potentially for years in my experience. And I think certainly at this time now with the new ways of um, hybrid and remote working, it means that some employees are subject to less effective and and less regular oversight with the result that the opportunities for fraud of this kind are are greater. These types of fraud have also tended to flourish during economic downturns, which is obviously precisely what we're in right now. So this is a, a real sort of key hot topic at the moment as it always has been. The second type of 
fraud and key commercial crime that is particularly prevalent is, and it probably won't come as a surprise, the, the external third party frauds, and particularly that with a, a cyber crime element, and that involving social engineering. And when I say social engineering, by, by that I mean instances of human interaction that are designed to dupe someone into disclosing sensitive information such as usernames and passwords that the fraud has then used to gain access to systems and to email or bank accounts. Probably many of your listeners will know this as phishing and no doubt will have experienced it several times a day, I imagine, um, amongst the flurry of spam emails that they receive into their personal email accounts and perhaps, but hopefully to a lesser extent, into their, their work accounts as well. And generally, a successful phish will result in someone at an organisation being duped into paying funds out of the business to a fraudster, believing them to be a genuine client or supplier or other legitimate third party. To provide a, a, an illustration and what is, I think, a particular problem for, for organisations is, is what we call business email compromise. And that typically arises in what is the sort of foundation, a legitimate business-to-business -business supply of goods or services um, contract, but where one of the parties during that performance has suffered a breach of its systems that has enabled the fraudsters to manipulate invoices and wrongly divert payment to their own accounts. Now, this type of fraud, I'd say, is particularly problematic um, for, for UK businesses, as the, the English courts are yet to provide some definitive guidance around who bears the liability for the loss. Is it, for instance, the company that suffered the hack that gave the fraudsters access to confidential information? Or is it the company that failed to identify the invoice as bogus and failed to carry out sufficient checks before making the payment? These can become really tricky matters to resolve. I've seen those types of claims before. And my, my gut sort of, um, my, my initial reaction would, to it would be, well, if the person who's, who's had their system compromised um, in the first place. But I, maybe it's not, it doesn't sound as though it's as simple as that. So that's, that's interesting. No, it's, it's, yeah. it's a really good observation. And in fact, it's, it's one that the, um, I, I think the American and Canadian courts have grappled with. And the short answer is they, they've taken the view that it's the party whoever is best placed to have prevented the fraud that should be the party to bear the liability. And if you look at the, the case law emerging from those other jurisdictions, in some instances, it will be the hacked party that has been determined to be the party at fault. And in others, it's been the party that hasn't been hacked, but made the payments. And I suspect if uh, the English courts would follow a similarly pragmatic yeah, yeah. Um, okay. approach to that. Yeah. Just to summarise, really, um, the, the, the two prevailing issues for, for, for businesses at, um, at present in relation to commercial crime risks are the fidelity employee fraud on the one hand and on the other it's the, the type of cyber crime that involves an external third party. And, and do you have a sense of you know, the scale of the problem, this, this type of fraud? I mean, any idea at all? It's, I, I mean, certainly I've seen from one... Um, report from a, a, a global insurance broker that in 2021 the number of reported social engineering fraud losses had surpassed employee thefts for the for the very first time so you can see that the two there are, are pretty much on par it seems and if you look at the level of 
social engineering fraud on business in the UK, those have been pitched at around £500 million a year, of which business email compromise scams represent around a fifth. Having said that, I suspect that the actual values and and prevalence of these um, frauds and losses is is much higher. And there's probably an underreporting and underrecording at play here. So, so on the whole, you know, you've mentioned underreporting there, perhaps as well, uh, might be an issue. What, what is your sense of the level of awareness of, of businesses generally with respect to these types of fraud too? I mean, are, are, are people aware generally or not? I mean, what's your sense? I mean, I mean, um, it's, it's obviously a really difficult question for a, a litigation insurance <laughs> lawyer um, t- to answer. As generally, I only get to see matters after something has already gone very seriously wrong. And it tends to be that those I'm working with um, haven't appreciated a particular risk, let's say. What what I can say, though, is that no business is immune from either external or internal threats. I've seen commercial crime losses hit the, the, the very large and international companies just the same as they hit the very small professional firms. Clearly, these frauds are happening. And I do suspect that many businesses will not necessarily have appreciated the degree of the risk that they face. So, I mean, picking up, for instance, um, around fidelity and employee frauds, I've, I've come across um, what's termed the 10-10-80 rule, which says that 80% of employees will never steal from their employer. And I'm one of those, of course. <laughs> um, that 10% will, because that's their core nature, and the other 10% could be persuaded to if the right opportunity or motivation arose. And looking at this last 10%, which is perhaps the most interesting category, mm-hmm. um, this is one that I come across often in infidelity frauds. Often there will be employees who have addictions and in particular gambling addictions that they, they struggle to, to fund. Mm-hmm. These employees don't appear to me to start out as hardened criminals. But they get sucked into a situation where the addiction consumes them and they turn to stealing from their employer as a a means to fuel it. Mm -hmm. But of course, the more you do that, the problem only becomes bigger. The sums you gamble become bigger. The losses you suffer become bigger. Mm -hmm. And so does the the theft. So you get this vicious circle that can last for for years, resulting in seven-figure losses, as I've seen, before an employer even becomes aware of the the situation. Mm -hmm. And I, I say this because I wonder how many businesses assume this 10, 10, 80 level mm-hmm, of risk. Mm-hmm. It seems um, awfully high to me. I was, I was thinking 20% <laughs> potentially of stealing. You know, that does seem very high to me. But it's, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting um, way to look at it from a risk mitigation. If you're, if, you're, yeah, if you're looking at it that way, then maybe that will drive your, the way you put processes or whatever around mitigating the risk absolutely i'm certainly not suggesting that we all have to become (laughs) uber cynical and suspicious of our (laughs) our colleagues and that's unlikely to create a positive working environment (laughs) and it doesn't feel like a fair reflection of the honesty that is within the vast majority of us Um, but perhaps organizations do need to be more willing to accept and be alert to the the significant levels of fraud risk that, that can potentially exist within a workforce and I would say that the same thing applies to a degree to to external third-party frauds as well. Um, My impression is that there is a much greater awareness on the part of organisations as to the existence of that threat, 
I mean, you just open up a newspaper or, or mm-hmm. scroll online and you'll see it littered with stories of, of hacks and ransomware attacks. But I question whether those businesses have a level of awareness as to how these frauds are perpetrated, both from a technical and, and practical perspective. Do they know the difference between a hacked email um, and, a, and a spoofed one? Or the means that a fraudster uses to dupe the finance director into disclosing her username and password on bogus websites. All of that, understanding all of that, I think is really key to then being able to determine what prevention strategies need mm-hmm. to be developed and implemented, implemented within the, um, the organisation. That would take us nicely on to what steps in terms of avoiding being the victim of fraud, what steps can businesses take? I, I, I mean, I, I think education is a a huge part of trying to combat um, certainly external third-party fraud before it results in a loss. I go back to what happened with so-called Friday frauds um, that plagued the legal profession a a Mm -hmm. few years ago. Friday fraud, fraudsters would target conveyancing transactions and in particular those involving the sales of properties. They would use social engineering methods to hack the email account of um, the solicitor or the or the clients to acquire confidential information on the sale transaction and they would then use that to convincingly dupe the solicitor into sending the sale proceeds to the fraudster's account rather than to the client and this is called friday fraud because many sales um, complete on fridays and i suspect it's also when um solicitors are in a rush and uh, red flags <laughs> are more easily missed yeah the problem became so big that the solicitors regulation authority began to pump out articles and other material and same so for insurers and brokers that would mm-hmm. explain what the risk is and how to manage it and at the same time law firms were beginning to invest time and resources in educating and training their people on how to identify and thwart potential Friday Mm -hmm. frauds. And and that, for instance, would include education around the the nature of the frauds and the range of matters and transactions that they could target. The importance, as simple as it seems, of exercising prudence before opening an attachment or clicking on a link in an email, developing the ability to spot spoof emails with character Mm -hmm. discrepancies or noticing strange um, timestamps on emails or changes in syntax or grammar from the Mm -hmm. from the purported client and obviously the importance of keeping passwords secret even from your colleagues Mm -hmm. and not using them cross-platform those types of learnings i suppose Mm -hmm. um, put into practice by those working with a law firm right from the support staff through to the partners had a, a huge impact in, in driving down the instances of these frauds. Mm-hmm. And alongside this, of course, there was an investment in technology. Mm-hmm. So law firms better protecting themselves through their IT systems, um, but also improving the processes and ways of doing things, such as having clear and stricter processes that required all bank details to be verified with a client or customer um, before a payment was made. Um, such as verification by telephone call to a reliable number. Really simple steps, but Mm. which had the potential of saving hundreds of thousands of pounds, if not millions. Mm -hmm. So we fast forward now 
and the result of all these efforts and increased awareness is that Friday frauds are almost a thing of the past. Mm-hmm. More commonly now, fraudsters are, are targeting um, the purchase funds or the deposits held by the clients, mm-hmm. which is not great for the clients, of course, but the point is still there that this implementation of robust systems and the power of education and awareness has had a really material effect on effectively changing the landscape mm-hmm. around the types of fraud that are facing at that time sort of the legal profession. Mm-hmm. And I say all of this, I mean, many of your listeners won't be law firms, but all of these um, steps, all the um, measures that mm-hmm. law firms put in place to tackle these Friday frauds are equally relevant to a business of any kind. Just thinking about how do you educate your staff and your managers as to mm-hmm. what risks are out there? How do you get them to look out for these risks? And what operational and technological systems do you need to, to develop and implement to bring this all together and make it work and, and provide for a robust um, defense to, mm-hmm. to fraud? So you've got lessons that have been learned from the law law firm industry, and you can bring that across to commercial entities as well. We're talking about external there. Can these things also be applied to Fidelity, the employee fraud we were talking about? Yeah, yes, absolutely. Um, e- equally relevant. Uh, I, I, I spoke before about the importance of developing an awareness mm-hmm. um, that these frauds exist in the first place and around the, the 10 10 rule. Even if you approach matters cynically in that respect it will still remain extremely difficult to determine who might fall within that 10 or 20 percent and this is again where process becomes key and in particular around the processing of payments Mm -hmm. um, whether it be in respect of the organization's own funds or those handled on behalf of of clients and the key control is ensuring all outgoing payments whether coming from an admin assistant or the finance director um, no discrimination there are all subject to oversight and approval mm-hmm. by at least one other person and each request should also be supported with a reliable audit trail and documentary evidence ideally in native form such as an original email that limits the opportunity for a fraudulent employee to manipulate mm-hmm. an invoice or other document. just by way of illustration um, in one matter I've dealt with um, there was an employee who stole one million pounds over the course of three years, Mm -hmm. pretending to make payments to contractors, but in fact he was paying himself and family members. His payment requests went through a manager and then were processed by the finance team. But at no point did anyone ask for evidence to support the request Mm -hmm. or try to interrogate that there was a proper reason to make that payment. And he got away with it um, for a very long three time. Years. Incredible example there, employee getting away with something like that for three years and, and stealing such a large amount of money, one million pounds. Is it getting harder to do that now? Or is it, uh, you know, are, are there more things coming in to make it harder for employees to, to, to get away with that type of fraud? I think it's fair to say that this type of fraud has certainly become more challenging for the dishonest employee in the last year or so. There's been the introduction of the confirmation of payee system within certain banks, um, which is a a mechanism, and you you may have come across it, I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm sure with your own personal banking, which flags any discrepancy between the purported beneficiary and the actual account holder. Right. So in that example that um, I had before, if the employee had been trying to make a payment in the name of a legitimate contractor, 
but in fact sending monies to his own accounts, mm -hmm. the confirmation of payee system would raise a red flag mm -hmm. and would alert the person making the payment that there is a name mismatch. And of course, that is going ought to lead to a trail of inquiry that could thwart an attempt to defraud the company. Word of warning though, that system is only effective if both the remitting and receiving banks have adopted the confirmation mm -hmm. of pay system and not all have right. and it's also only effective if you have within your organization a system where it's not the employee that's authorizing their own payments mm -hmm. and there are still many businesses that that i think fall between these two gaps right. Right. so just coming back to, to yeah talking about oversight um you mentioned there employees being able to authorize their own transactions does that really happen that much it's it's hard to know what obviously yeah. what goes on within uh, each business and perhaps it doesn't happen that much at employee level mm -hmm. but i've certainly seen it at the more senior um, director level mm -hmm. um, there's one matter recalling in particular that concerned a number of directors um, of, of an entertainment business that misappropriated several millions of dollars by conspiring with bogus cleaning companies to mm -hmm. issue invoices for services that were never rendered. The trick here was that the directors all had a $2 million threshold below mm -hmm. which they could make payments without any additional checks or oversight. And of course, they exploited this and made hundreds of payments below that threshold, and therefore mm -hmm. under the radar, over a number of years before the fraud was finally discovered, but obviously by which time significant damage had, had mm -hmm. already been done. Mm -hmm. In some ways, that, that sort of also brings me on to a, another important fraud prevention process, which is regular auditing, reconciliation, mm -hmm. and, and spot checking of, of accounts and of the, um, the files or transactions that underlie them. Um, in my experience, it's often the case that employee frauds can persist for two or three years mm -hmm. and are only discovered when something triggers a spot checking of, mm -hmm. of the accounts or their files. Typically, that can be the employee suddenly going on long-term sick leave with no explanation or proof of illness, raising suspicions. Mm -hmm. And this, in turn, tends to happen because the employee has, just before that event, embarked on a final flurry and become greedy with the sums that they've stolen and pretty much know by that point the game is up they're going mm -hmm. to get caught so they steal as much as they can and then right. disappear yes. yeah. and it's only then that the organizations the employer question what's mm -hmm. happened and find out that there's been um, a fraud taking place for for a considerable period of time so I'd, I'd say that regular robust and perhaps even cynical auditing and spot checking um, and generally paying attention to any changes in the pattern mm -hmm. of, of payments of an employee in terms of frequency and amount could unearth lingering frauds before they reach that damaging mm -hmm. final flurry. And what role does whistleblowing play in this? I mean, have you seen instances of, of whistleblowers um, flagging concerns and then leading, you know, leading to a discovery of fraud? Certainly whistleblowing is an important means of discovering mm -hmm. fraudulent activity. I mean, after all, it's, it's probably a fraudulent employee's peers that are most in tune with changes in behaviour mm -hmm. that potentially raise red flags. What I would suggest is that organisations should think about creating 
a safe environment for staff or managers to express concerns Mm -hmm. that they might have about another colleague. And indeed, I I saw recently a statistic that over 40% of fraud is initially uncovered through um, tip-offs from other colleagues within the organisation. Um, but also importantly, um, through complaints brought by clients or customers, potentially because they haven't received funds mm-hmm. that, that they were um, they were due. It may feel a bit perverse um, to be encouraging complaints about your business um, from clients, but again, organisations should think about whether they should provide a clear and simple means mm-hmm. um, to communicate Pro- those complaints, because yeah. who knows what that, that may help unearth. So we've talked there about some risk mitigation and and how these things get unearthed, processes people can put in place to to mitigate the risk. So we've discovered the fraud now. (laughs) What about after, what about the kind of immediately after the discovery? What what steps can businesses take then to sort of mitigate the loss, if you like, after the fraud's been discovered? Is there there anything you can do at that point? Uh, Absolutely. I mean, first of all, I'd encourage all businesses to have some form of crisis management plan in place. It doesn't have to be a 50-page document, but just something enough to kick things off in in the right direction. And I would say that in addition to, of course, notifying the the police or action fraud and any relevant regulators, a really important aspect will be identifying who your commercial crime, cyber, other insurers and brokers are Mm. and how to reach them urgently. Reporting an incident as a matter of urgency, even if the incident took place several days ago or, or even longer, is absolutely key, in my view, to maximising the prospects of recovery mm-hmm. and preservation of funds. This is particularly so in respect of external third-party frauds, coming back to that. There's often a tendency to assume that funds will be long gone to Timbuktu before mm-hmm. anything can be done. And yeah, Sometimes that is the the case, Mm -hmm. but often it's not. And effective action can be taken, um, sometimes even long after the event. It's worth noting that when losses are suffered, there are numerous legal mechanisms available to businesses and their insurers for the investigation of fraud and for the preservation and recovery of funds or other assets. And this can range from simply us accessing our little black book of contacts at banks mm-hmm. to try to get informal blocks um, placed onto accounts, right through to freezing injunctions and proprietary injunctions against the wrongdoers, um, whether it be in this jurisdiction or elsewhere. Mm-hmm. In, in terms of the tools at our disposal, I'm a particular fan of what we call a Norwich Pharmacal or, or Bankers Trust order. This is a relatively low cost process um, to obtain a disclosure order from the courts, mm-hmm. which then compel a bank that has unwittingly received stolen funds to disclose full details about the identity of the recipient account holder and their statements of accounts over a period of time. And this can generate a surprisingly rich picture as to the nature of the wrongdoer and their other assets, as well as to the status of the funds and Mm -hmm. onto where they might have been paid, and in turn, therefore, who else might be involved in the fraud. Mm -hmm. And and from this position of strength of information, much better informed decisions can be made on targeting the pursuit of sums identified or the wrongdoers, uh, whether to pursue further investigations or injunctive relief, 
or is, is sometimes the case simply deciding that we're not going to take any further action at all it's not mm -hmm. cost effective to do so but you first satisfied yourself that no obvious opportunity for a, a valuable recovery has been mm. overlooked and i would say it's it's through obtaining this type of disclosure that we have experienced particular success recovering millions mm -hmm. um, over recent years often simply identifying sums that have been blocked within the the banking mm -hmm. system so they're just sitting there somewhere sort of yeah. Yes, in principle, the banks should be engaging what they call the interbank recovery process, mm -hmm. where they pass um, stolen funds back through the layers of banks back to the um, mm -hmm. originating accounts. Mm -hmm. But we found that often that that doesn't happen. And there may be various good reasons for that. The banks mm -hmm. might be nervous around issues concerning mixed funds. Laundering, yeah. Um, and what what we found is that if we are able through the disclosure to trace funds, identify to what extent they're mixed funds or they're mm -hmm. clean funds just passing straight through and track them to an account, pinpoint them, and then evidence our clients' entitlements over those funds and entitlement to have them back, we can push through that recovery. And that's happened sometimes a year after the event. Uh, um, which yeah. goes to show that you can have funds, significant funds, yes, and six it? figures blocked within uh, within the system. It's worth looking into. How, how how big are the spider diagrams that you draw when you're doing, when you're mapping? All that? I, <laughs> have I, you got a desk full of spider diagrams? I, I put, put put it this way: my my kids are massively impressed when I when yeah. I come home with a, a, a an A two spreadsheet. A2. Yeah, uh, of nice. course, with all the names redacted, yeah. uh, not wishing <laughs> yeah. to disclose confidential information. Of course. Lots of pretty colours as well. Great. Okay, I'd spoken to you about it in the past. I heard about it and thought, wow, that's. And we actually had a crime loss, and I phoned you up, and we we did look into it, and we didn't we didn't pursue it in that case. But just shows, you know, if you've got it in your mind somewhere, you can you can kick it off early and at least give yourself a chance of tracing the funds. Right at the start, Tom, you mentioned gambling and the role that plays in, in driving some of these frauds. What happens in that scenario? So the the, the fraudsters stolen the money, they've gambled it all, and it's gone. So, so what do you do? Is, is it all gone? What do you do in that, that sort of scenario? In my experience, it's a lost cause pursuing the fraudulent employee. Mm -hmm. They would already have gambled away all the sums that they've stolen and maybe all the sums that they won from the gambling operators for a brief period of time. But that doesn't necessarily mean that there's no recovery potential. Again, returning to this idea of disclosure and arming yourself with information, if you obtain a copy of the um, employee's accounts, bank accounts that mm -hmm. they used to gamble with, you can look pretty forensically at every single transaction, mm -hmm. see how much they stole from their employer, and then see how much they spent with online gambling operators, for instance, mm -hmm. um, right down to the granularity of how many transactions each day have they spent with a particular operator and for how much and some of the time that can help produce a really clear picture as to the nature of the gambling and whether there are grounds for complaint or mm -hmm. claim against the gambling operators so I, I've, I've dealt recently with one matter where the dishonest employee um, was earning less than 30,000 um, a year but through the disclosure of his accounts we identified that in one single day and with one single online gambling mm -hmm. operator he spent 70,000 
which is a, a crazy amount. Yeah. That's more than twice his annual salary. Yeah. And that was just a fraction of um, over a million pounds that he stole over a, a period of time for his employer. But what the disclosure gave us was the grounds to doubt whether that gambling operator in question and others as well had complied with their legislative and regulatory obligations mm -hmm. and particularly those around advocating socially responsible gambling mm -hmm. and maintaining effective controls against money laundering and in mm -hmm. relation to prevention of mm -hmm. crime. This sort of information built up from that forensic analysis of the transaction suddenly breathes life into a recovery action where otherwise the prospect of getting any funds back from a penniless gambler and non-existent mm -hmm. so i mean what, what i've learned generally along the way is that valuable recovery opportunities do exist even if at first blush um, they may seem and in fact be mm -hmm. highly speculative mm -hmm. acquiring information and a bit of thinking outside the box can deliver some some fantastic results mm -hmm. i don't know if this is a different uh question for a different podcast tom but it'll be interesting to know you know if that is if it is recoverable to some degree from the operator is that that is the company's money that's recoverable it's not the gambler's money who obviously was ill and should have been looked after by the operator more i don't know where the duty of care is there and who's actually due obviously ultimately conversations due to the company he stole from but he wasn't even he wasn't really looked after by the the operator from a non-lawyer Richard, and um, that's a that's a very good <laughs> technical question, um, it, it, and it, it's a really good one. So it, it, it's fair to say that there are um, some some complexities um, around the causes of action that exist um, as between, let's say, the victims of um, gambling who are not the gamblers themselves and the gambling operators. Um, but equally, if you um, look at the decisions that have been published by the Gambling Commission um, on, on their websites where, let's say, financial compensatory awards have been made. You can see that those are at times made in favour of employers and organisations that are the, the victim here, mm -hmm. where they have had their, their funds stolen in order to gamble. So there is definitely a... a degree of precedent there um, to support um, an expectation that the, the employer should be compensated. Thanks for that Tom I mean that's all incredibly insightful stuff I mean what about are there any new trends or um, that are particularly interesting that you've observed or or even any like particular territories that you think are in, you know interesting examples um, or areas to keep an eye on? Absolutely. I think it's crypto and NFTs and mm -hmm. digital assets in general that are very much on everyone's lips at the moment. Not just wondering if, if and when the Bitcoin bubble will burst, but also because there are many more frauds arising that involve crypto or NFTs, ranging mm -hmm. from Ponzi scheme investment scams and, and Bitcoin ransomware attacks through to more traditional wire frauds or phishing scams that involve the transfer of crypto rather than traditional currency. I'm currently dealing at the moment with a matter where a company was duped into sending Bitcoin to a fraudster's 
crypto wallet instead of to their clients. Mm -hmm. We trace that stolen Bitcoin to an exchange, uh, crypto exchange in East Africa and have since obtained freezing injunctions and disclosure orders as part of a preservation and recovery strategy. And that sort of action and that sort of case has been coming before the courts over the last two or three years. Mm -hmm. And all of it's pretty groundbreaking. I have to say credit to the English courts for having adapted so well to this emerging class of assets and seeking to construe and manipulate the common law in a way that allows the victims of, of crypto crime to take steps to preserve and, and mm -hmm. recover their their losses. It's also worth mentioning in this regard that there is a law commission consultation out there at the moment that's proposing reform on the law around digital assets, which if implemented would more explicitly recognise and strengthen the proprietary rights that people have in respect mm -hmm. of crypto, NFTs and other mm -hmm. digital assets. And what that effectively means is that victims of crime will have a strengthened armory and weapons available mm -hmm. at their disposal to seek to preserve their interests and go after the wrongdoers. Mm -hmm. So I, I would say that as digital assets become increasingly a feature of our, our lives and, and of business, this probably also means more fertile ground for, for criminals and it's, it's definitely a space to watch. Mm -hmm. You just got me thinking um, in terms of tracing and, and asset preservation, what's, it, what's an easier route, blockchain or banking system? <laughs> that, that's a very good question. So there is software out there mm -hmm. um, that, that we use that allows you to trace stolen crypto mm -hmm. through wallets and to identify if and when they hit a, a crypto okay. exchange. Yeah. And the minute it does, that's when we've got something that's a bit similar to a bank where you can start thinking about freezing injunctions and disclosure orders. Mm -hmm. That's not to say that um, tracing through traditional banks becomes irrelevant. Mm -hmm. As you probably know, in order to cash out from a crypto exchange, so to convert your Bitcoin back into pounds, mm -hmm. for instance, um, that exchange account needs to be linked with a high street bank account. Mm -hmm. And so when that cashing out happens, the money goes into a conventional account. And then again, you have an opportunity to seek disclosure from that bank account yeah. and to find out more about the account holder, the status of the funds and onto where they might then be sent. Mm -hmm. It's a fascinating new, new area and trend um, to keep an eye on. We're coming to a, to a close now. I thought really like to hear from you having having had such a ha having such a vast uh, level of experience of dealing with with these types of matters. What are the key kind of couple of lessons that you've learned over the years from all the all the cases you've handled? I, I, I would say, like the scouts, be prepared, <laughs> and that's both in relation to having proper systems and processes in place, as we, we discussed earlier. Mm -hmm. um, but also knowing what to do and who to contact urgently when a situation arises. And that might well be you, Owen, as a oh, the claims insurance handler. claims manager. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, th th there's also be positive. Preserving and recovering losses is rarely easy or certain, but don't automatically assume that these are lost causes. I see real value in making decisions that are well-informed. And that will often mean at least some degree of investigation after a fraud has occurred. 
to understand what's happened, where the funds are and who's behind it. And from there, often that will mean some degree of investigation into what's happened to determine whether or not there is a valuable and realistic pathway to a recovery. Well, thank you to Tom Philby for a fascinating delve into that commercial crime world. Owen, uh, lots lots to get stuck into there, really. I thought Tom covered a lot of different areas and, and particularly lots of different specific examples, which is always nice. What were your key takeaways from that 30 minutes? Key takeaways for me, um, I think the really interesting, you made it right at the outset, this, this idea of viewing this risk as an the the 80 10 10 rule yeah. which came as a bit of a shock but then actually when you think about it i think it's quite a sensible um approach to to take perhaps um you know bad things do happen so um let's not live in, in a bubble and um so i thought that was a great great point from tom as how to how to kind of view this risk as a business secondly just think it was a good point Tom made about law firms and, and that Friday fraud scam epidemic, if you like, that, that was occurring a few years ago. That can be replicated to to other businesses. So I think, um, and that's all about training and um, processes and controls. So I think that's somewhere we can look to for lessons of uh, when it comes to risk mitigation. Just it's a basic one, but again, it's come up again and again. Processes, procedures, um, whistleblowing, complaints, those sorts of things are key. Um, um, if you're going to again manage manage this risk and, and give you the best, give yourself the best opportunity to identify it early uh, and to be able to deal with it, because often these things, as Tom said, go on for years without being even without anyone realising. And then finally, point around all is not lost at that point when suddenly someone realises that something has gone amiss and that money has been stolen. And here, then this, that that kind of the crisis management kind of piece comes into it, I guess, but speed of, of how you respond at that point is, is probably crucial. But there are, of course, ways um, and tool, there are tools out there for you to preserve or recover funds. So think about who maybe the, you know, we'd be thinking about who the best person is to call, be it your insurers, your someone like Tom. So it was just a lesson there that, that there are things you can do even when you realize that something really bad has happened. Yeah, I thought, and I thought the gambling example was actually a really good example of that in terms of you know, it might not seem obvious that that might be a recoverable mm-hmm. loss um, and, and Tom kind of hinted at the fact that that, that could be the case in that particular yeah, in that particular yeah. example uh, if you get on top of it quickly and you're willing to do the kind of forensic work to kind of unwind it but yeah really good really thanks to Tom for joining us and we'll be back again in a couple of weeks of course a few more episodes to get out before the Christmas break Owen uh, enjoy the dark evenings and light mornings thank you very much Richard See you next time. Take care.